0: Our Heavenly Father, again, we come before you, we thank you with grateful hearts, just for the privilege of coming together to worship. Lord, I pray that you would go with us now as we look into your word, that you would open it up for us, that you would apply it to our lives and our hearts, and that you would speak to us here today individually, that we might begin to see where we can begin to make this part of our lives, that we might honor you and serve you. So, Father, we pray your blessings on us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you all be seated? You know, the Bible teaches that God is a God of grace and love and mercy, and uh, that is so true, and we can see it all through the pages of Scripture, that God's grace just shines through, and he's always portrayed in the Bible as a God of love and mercy. But there are times in everyone's life where God's patience runs out and God uh, chastens or disciplines or judges his, his children. And today we're going to be looking at a, a situation like that in the book of Joshua as we continue this study. And sometimes that uh, chastening is, is very severe, that uh, discipline that God brings into our lives to try to teach us things, to try to correct bad behavior, that sort of thing. And today we're going to be looking at such an event. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we were looking at the battle of Jericho there in Joshua, and how God had blessed them and how God made the walls of Jericho fall and and gave them uh, the city miraculously. It was just a miracle, and yet He gave them very specific instructions that everything within the city is mine. Now I will give you follow the. Other people, the other cities that you take, I will give you the bounty from that. But you are giving back to me as uh, an offering of first fruits, you will call it. Everything within the city, and the gold and the silver and the brass and things like that, went into the treasury, and everything else had to be destroyed. We talked about this. You discussed it last week in your growth groups, how that men, women, children, everything was to be destroyed. Now the next city on their list of cities to conquer in this land, as they're overtaking and subduing the land, is the city of Ai. It's two little letters, A and I, Ai. And it's about 10 miles from Jericho, and it was at Ai that they suffered a shocking defeat. That's where they just really were beaten. And 36 of Israel's soldiers, innocent men, lost their lives. And the reason for it, as we're going to look at today, is because one man in the nation of Israel decided that he wanted something that belonged to God. And the Bible will will see here in a moment that this gentleman by the name of Achan kept 30 shekels of silver, a gold bar, and a Babylonian robe that he looked at and he thought, well, I can't just let this go. So he took it and he hid it and tried to hide it from God. and. Ultimately, when they go back out now to fight the next battle, they are beaten severely. And uh, we'll, we'll get into the details of this, but uh, let me begin as we're going to work our way through this chapter, in chapter 7 of the book of Joshua. They've just defeated Jericho, and now here in chapter 7, verse 1, it begins this way. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now you've got to begin to ask yourself some questions here. And the first question that kind of jumps off the page is why in the world is God angry at Israel? I mean, it was Achan that did this, and he hid it. They knew nothing about it. Nobody in the whole camp knew about this. But yet God is judging the nation and I told you before when we started this study that you're going to discover that God treats Israel as one person. They stand together or they fall together. When God pours out blessings, blessings fall on the just and the unjust alike. And when God pours out judgment, it falls on the, the innocent and the guilty alike. And it's just a unique situation, never to be repeated in history, where God dealt with a group of people in this fashion. And this is the reason why you're going to find in the Old Testament that God judges the entire nation when things like this happen. Now, let's begin to look at this, because what happens is Joshua sends out spies to the city of Ai, and they come back and say, hey, this is a little city. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. So they only send out a small army. We pick the story up in verse 4. It says, so about 3,000 went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. They are utterly shocked at what took place. They just came off one of the greatest victories in the history of of the nation. Uh, The walls of Jericho collapse and they destroy the entire city and they are riding... High, uh, as far as God proving to them that He's going to take care of them, and they go into the city and they do. They go in to take this city and they discover that um, it didn't work this time, and so they are shocked. And 36 innocent men die because of it. Now let's look at the point that I want to make because there. This lesson is entitled "Hard Lessons to Learn." And there are three things out of the story that I want to draw your attention to that are hard lessons for you and me to learn. But we have to. We have to understand these these points, these uh, these lessons. And so the first one is this, that your sins always affect others. Your sins always affect somebody else. You cannot sin in isolation because in some way, some fashion, either directly or indirectly, the things that you do will come out and have an effect on people. Even if they don't find them out, just the effects of it, it alters their life and has a a detrimental effect on them. Now I want you to write down this quote and listen to it carefully and this should should appear on the screen. The quote is this, never underestimate the damage one person can do when living outside the will of God. Never underestimate the damage that one person can do when that person is living outside of the will of God. Now, the Bible is full of examples of this. Let's go back to Abraham, for example. Abraham, when he goes into Egypt and, and another time, when he goes into another city, he tells his wife to tell the folks that he's, she's his sister because he's scared to death for his own life. He didn't really believe what God said that he would take care of him. So he almost, as a result of his sin lost his wife, almost lost her because of that. King David, when he was the king, God told him, David, don't count your soldiers because it doesn't matter how many soldiers you have. Your faith is in me, so you'll always be victorious, just trust me. And yet David, the Bible tells us, Satan entered or or tempted David with the thought of counting his soldiers. And God was so enraged because David took a census of his soldiers that the angel of God swept through the army of Israel and 70,000 men died. It almost cost him his army because his disobedience to God. Their lives were affected by his sin. Jonah ran from God and his sin almost sank a ship and took the lives of innocent men there. Every time we look into the scripture, we find that People's lives are adversely affected because of the sins of somebody else. And it's true today. You know, the church is a living organism. The Bible tells us that we are a family. We're made up of different individuals from different backgrounds and different personalities and everything. Different nationalities, all kinds of things. And yet we come together as a family. And our lives as a church are intertwined. They're intertwined. We rely on each other. We count on each other. We are so involved in the lives of each other, and that's the way it should be. But in doing that, you need to understand that your sin often splatters into the lives of other people. Because you see, like I think Rusty Ryan coined this phrase, sin splatters. And it does. And because of the closeness of the relationship within the church, it it occurs more often than you think, whether directly or indirectly, your lives are affected by the sins of other people. Now, let's look at some examples of how sin affects our lives. Let's take a situation where a parent is abusive. It could be either the husband or the wife. And that abuse, be it physical, sexual, or um, just emotional, whatever it may be, that child is affected directly by the abuse of that parent. But when that child grows up and has children of their own, their lives will be affected indirectly because of the sin of that parent. It just passes on because we learn bad behavior. And sometimes we think to ourselves, well, my sin doesn't affect anybody else, but that's not true because it always does. A parent, or anybody for that matter, a person in the church, who has fallen prey to alcoholism or drug abuse, They are robbing their family of the blessings of God. They are robbing other church members of the blessings of God. Their abuse and addiction affects everybody around them, be it directly or indirectly, their lives are affected. When a parent neglects their children and they won't work and they're lazy, their lives are affected. Everybody's life in that family is affected. When someone in the church or someone in some, a person's family goes to jail for whatever reason, their lives are affected. When you and I hear about somebody being locked up that's a part of this church, we're affected by that. When we see abuse in a family and we are church members with, and, and accountable for that family, then, yeah, our lives are affected. Everybody's life is affected by the sin of other people. And my challenge to you with this first lesson that we have to learn is, you know, our sins are always affecting other people. But the challenge is this, that you and I learn to think before we act, that we learn to think before we act, that we slow down, that we stop, and that we don't just consider the fact, you know, this is something that I want to do in in thinking to ourselves that nobody's ever going to know and it's never going to affect anybody, but to stop and ask the question, in reality, who is it going to affect? Because even if I'm not found out, even if nobody knows, the relationships are altered and things change and the decisions that I make and the way I relate to people, everything is affected by it. And we don't sin in isolation. We don't. We, we try to convince ourselves that we do and it's nobody else's business. But that is not biblical because every situation you see in the Bible, the sins of one person affect the lives of other people and chain re- events are, are, be, are begun and... And pretty soon, it's, it's just a big mess. Now, by the same token, just like our sins affect the lives of other people, our good deeds affect the lives of other people, too. You know, you go and look in the Bible, and some, some of you need to do this sometime. Just type into your, your Bible search program, whichever one you're using, just type in the phrase, one another, and type it in, and the New Testament will pop up probably 30-something phrases where the Bible tells us about the, the love or the relationship between the one another's in the Bible. For example, we're commanded to love one another. We're commanded to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another, be kind to one another. It goes on and on. Now there's a reason for that. Because you see, there's this principle in the New Testament that what I do in my life affects other people. And even the good things that I do, and you know as well as I do, that people that you look up to, people that you admire in your life, whether they are in this church or not, as believers in Christ, their testimony lifts you up, the way they treat you, the way they talk to you, the way they minister to you, that is an encouragement to you, and it affects them, and it affects you. And so this is the the point, you know, that whatever we do affects others. But in the context of what we're looking at today, I want you to focus primarily on the reality that your sins, the choices that you make in life, always affect other people. And it's usually the people that you love the most that are affected the most by your sins. That's the first lesson that I want you to learn out of this passage. And we're going to have to move quickly, I know, because we're running out of time here. But. Um, I could develop probably that one into an entire sermon, but it's no sense beating it to death, okay? So let's move on. The second one is this. Here's the second lesson that I want you to learn, and that is this. That pride is one of our greatest pitfalls. Pride is one of our greatest pitfalls. Now, if somebody goes out into a, a, a yard and digs a deep hole, and somebody walking along unsuspectingly and falls into it, That's what we call a pitfall. Something that you fall prey to that you weren't really expecting or didn't see. And it happens to us all the time as as people. Pride is that way for all of us. We can lapse into this attitude of a proud heart so quickly and and without noticing it. And to tell you the truth, more often than not it occurs uh, right after something really good in our lives something successful, something, some blessing of God. And then we begin to think about just how good we really are. And one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden we're stumbling over pride. And I want to make a statement, and you may agree or not agree, but I want you just to consider this, okay? Every sin that we commit seems to be the result of pride. Every sin that we commit as believers in Christ, the things that we struggle with, have their foundation. The, the main thing, the main sinful attitude that spurs them on is pride. Now let's continue the story, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. They have just been defeated in Ai, and now, or no they haven't, I'm sorry, let me back up. They have not yet been defeated. Joshua is ready to send in the troops And here's what it says in verses 2 and 3. It says, Now Joshua sent men from from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-haven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Now here's what they say. Now watch. Not all of the army will have to go up against Ai. Just send two or 3,000 men to take it and and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. Interesting. The spies go up. They come back with a report that says, "Hey, look, they're so small and there's so few of them. Why take the whole army and get all this stuff? To you? It's too much trouble. So just send up two or three thousand troops. We'll take that city and we'll move on." Now here's something you're going to discover about this. Okay. Not one time is it recorded in this part of the story. Did Joshua ever ask the Lord what to do? Not one time does he ever go before the Lord and say, okay, what's the battle plan for this city? You told me in great detail what to do with Jericho, and now we come to this, this little city, and what I think has happened is that Joshua and the other leaders of Israel look at this and think, you know what? We're on a roll here, and we've, we've conquered this city, and we can take this one. We don't really need to bother God with it. And all of a sudden Joshua assumed that God was pleased with him because of things that had happened already, and that why bother God? Because you know what? We can do this ourselves. And that's what they did. Now if they had a, if they had sought the Lord, as you'll see here in a moment, God was ready to tell them what the problem was. God was ready to tell them what they should do in that there was sin in the camp, uh, he was more than ready to tell them. But they never asked. We can do this ourselves. That's their attitude. And they go up, and one of the worst, most humiliating defeats in all of their history as an army takes place in this little city of Ai. In verse 6, it says this, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, Remaining there till evening, the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. Now this is a a, a manner of grieving in that day and age. They would cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes, the Bible tells us. And it was a matter, it was a a way in which they demonstrated to God that they were remorseful, they were repentant, they were humble because they sat on an ash heap, covered their heads with with something and, and they bowed before God. And you can just imagine the uncertainty, their confusion, their grief, all of these feelings are going through their mind. We don't know what happened. How could this happen? And they're pouring their hearts out to God. And then in verse 10, verses 10 through 12, God speaks. Now watch what happens here, okay? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. Now watch. They have stolen. Well, who do they steal from? Well, they stole from me is what God is saying. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, God's very upfront, And it's almost as if he's saying, look, get up. If you had asked me this before, I would have told you, but you didn't come to me. You thought you could do it yourself, you see. You were the one puffed up. You were the one that was so arrogant. You thought, why bother God with such a trivial thing? We'll just go take care of this as a piece of cake. Now, it's kind of interesting because I want to jump ahead for a moment, okay, to chapter 8 in the first verse because this is what happens when everything, all the dust is settled. Achan's been taken care of, and God says, okay, now we're going to go back up to Ai and take care of the situation. Here's what he says. Now watch in chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you. And go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, the people, the city, and his land. Now it's interesting, isn't it? When Joshua was proudful and arrogant, he said, all we need is two or three thousand. We can do this. When God made the plan, God said, no, you take the whole army up there and take care of this. And had they not been so proud and arrogant and self-reliant, they would have asked God to begin with and God would have told them the problem. There's sin in the camp. We've got to deal with it. And when you go up there, you take everybody with you. But he didn't. You know, pride is a very subtle thing. We're always saying to ourselves, you know what, I can do this. I can do this. So why should I have to pray? There's no need to pray because it's not an emergency. If it was an emergency, if this was a Jericho, man, then we'd be praying, wouldn't we? But this is not a Jericho. It's an Ai, so it's small. It's insignificant. I don't need to pray about this. I don't need to hear from the Lord. I don't need His direction. I got this. And I don't know what it is, but I'm going to tell you, I'm, guilty as, I'm as guilty as you are. But what is it about us that keeps wanting? we keep thinking to ourselves that God will be impressed if we go do this for him. Rather than God saying, you don't understand, you're going to do it, but I'm going to do it through you, and I'm going to tell you how it's done and give you the power to do it. I want you to walk with me. I don't care how insignificant this mountain looks to you. I don't care how little this this need is. What is it about our prayer life? Whenever somebody's dying of cancer, we're all about praying earnestly for them. Well, we don't pray for the smaller things. We don't see the need for that. We think, all the doctors can take care of this. Why pray? But yet, you know, you you look at every situation in the Bible where God is dealing with us as his people, and God is saying to us, I want you to pray, I want you to seek, I want you to listen. Now, here's what has happened in my life, and I'm sure it's true of you as well, that when I don't do that, I am prone to listening to ungodly advice. I will listen to my friends. I will listen to other people in the church. I will listen to people who have never sought the Lord either, and they're giving advice, and sometimes you'll fall prey to that if you're not talking to God yourself. And it's only because I am proudful and arrogant that I think to myself, why bother God with this? Why bother God? God will be impressed if I just take initiative. God will be impressed if I just do it. And God says, no, I'm not impressed. There are reasons why God hates pride. And I've kind of alluded to it already. Number one is because we don't seek him when we're proudful, prideful. We don't seek him. And God doesn't want that. And so this is one of the reasons why God hates pride. There's another reason why God hates pride. And that is that because pride is the root cause of every sin we commit. God knows that if you have a prideful heart, you will fall victim to every kind of sin. Now watch this, okay? Watch this. and You think about this yourself. Pride tells me that I want something, I need something, I deserve something. But when I have a prideful heart, I look at a situation and I think, I'm going to do that because I deserve it. I want that and I deserve it, so I'm going to take it. Now let's take a few situations of, of where we are prone to, to fall into temptation and look at the root cause of it. Okay, let's talk about immorality. Let's talk about immorality, whether it's a person that's not married or a person that is who's committing adultery or at least thinking about it. We look at a situation and we look at another woman or another man and we think to ourselves, I know what the Bible says, but you know what, I've been good all my life and I deserve something. I deserve pleasure. I deserve a little excitement in my life. I deserve something. I've been a good person all of my life, and, and I just this one time. What's motivating you? What is it? Well, you say, well, that's lust. Well, lust may be part of it, but the underlying thing, the reason you're going to make that choice is because you've convinced yourself out of your prideful arrogance that you deserve it. Every time somebody falls into sexual sin, they have convinced themselves they deserve it. I need it take stealing, we take things that aren't ours, we cheat people, all because we've convinced ourselves somehow, I really want this, and it's not going to be that big of a deal, it won't matter. I want it, I deserve it, I'm going to take it. Drugs, addictions. The motivating factor behind a person becoming an addict is because of their own selfishness and their own pride. It makes me feel good. What about your family? What about your friends? Well, they don't matter. I'm the only one that matters. So I'll do it. See, that's pride. When I begin to think that I'm the most important thing in the world, that I can make the decision that I'm, I'm right in everything that I do, whatever it may be, that's pride. Abusing people is pride. I want to be superior. Lying to people is pride because if I'm found out, I'll be embarrassed. I don't want to be embarrassed. That's pride. Everything we do can be traced back to that arrogance in our own hearts as human beings. Now, so we have to ask ourselves, then what's the antidote to this poison called pride? What is the antidote? What, what am I going to do to prevent this? You know what the scripture tells us? It does. It gives us the antidote for this. Let me show you or tell you where it is. Jesus was preaching one day and some religious leader comes up to him and asks him, said, now, you tell me, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And here's what he said. He said, here's the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord God with all of your heart. And here's the second one, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch. If I want to guard myself against pride, I need to apply that to my life. This is all through the New Testament. Because you see, when I make a commitment that I'm going to put God first and love Him with all my heart and I'm not going to love myself that much, I'm going to love Him, I will never ever take a step of disobedience that would bring shame to Him because I have chosen, I have committed to love Him first. And I've taken my pride, myself, and I put it back here and I said, okay, God, you first. But not only that, The second one is very important, too, because it's basically saying this. Rather than you screwing over your neighbor and taking advantage of him and cheating him in some way, why don't you put him first, too? Why don't you look at your neighbor and say, more so than taking care of you, put that person ahead of you. Now, you tell me. When I am doing these two things, and because of my love for God, and because I'm committed to put the other person before myself and his needs before mine, then how can I become prideful? And if I'm not prideful, then chances are I won't struggle with these other sins because I will always revert back to this. God first, my neighbor second. I'm somewhere down the the list. And if I do that, it's a guard against pride. So God knew what he was talking about when all through the New Testament we're told to put other people before ourselves, to encourage the other person, to love the other person, to take care of the other person, be kind to them. Because you see, that affects me. And it's a safeguard against me becoming so arrogant that I would take a a step of disobedience and sin against God because I wanted it. And you tell me, folks, is there any sin that you and I commit that we don't choose to do it? It's our choice every single time. Every time. So pride is your biggest pitfall. That's the second thing that I want you to see. Here's the third one very quickly, and that is this. This lesson is very important. That God will not persistently tolerate sin. God will not persistently tolerate sin. Now let me go take you through the remainder of the story, and then we'll make the application, okay? After Israel has repented, God now tells them what to do. And in verse 13 of chapter 7, he says this. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So this is now closing in on the problem." And here's the process, because he tells them in the next verse, in verse 14, what they're to do the next morning. He says, in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. Now, every one of the 12 tribes of Israel march before Joshua, and God somehow, in some way, we don't know how he's doing this, points out the tribe that's guilty. So, as it so happens the tribe of Judah was the one that was guilty. He says in the next sentence, he says, The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. So he's narrowing it down. It's a bigger family unit. So the clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Why this elaborate process? Why doesn't God just say, hey, Achan did it. Go take care of this but he brings them through this process. We'll talk about this in a moment, but let me finish the story. They narrow it down. Achan's pointed out, and here's what Achan says in verse 21. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. He said, yeah. He said, I went up to the battle. We finished the battle, and I'm in there by myself in one of these houses, and, man, I I see this stuff, and I thought to myself, man, you've been out in the wilderness for 40 years, and you don't have a new change of clothes, and you need some new clothes, and that robe would look good on you, and, man, what I could do with that silver and gold. And I thought to myself, I said, Aiken, you deserve this. It's yours. You ought to take it. I said, I did. I took it, and here's where you can find it. So they go and they get it and they bring it back. And now here's the final part of the story. In verse 24 it says this. Then Joshua together with all of Israel took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? He said, the Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all of Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since which basically means the valley of trouble. Wow, harsh. Yeah, you bet. But now you got to begin to ask yourself, why in the world did God take such extreme measures? I believe it was probably for the rest of the people. Can you imagine as they marched by the presence of God, clan by clan, family by family, man by man, and every one of them is wondering, did somebody in my family do this? They're scared to death. I bet you they never did it again. Not after that. Scared to death? Yeah. But I believe there's a second reason why they did it this way. And this is just my opinion. I can't prove this from the Bible. you got to ask yourself this. As they go through this elaborate, drawn-out process of parading in front of God. What if Achan would have confessed earlier? Could it be that maybe God's doing this for as much for Achan as he is for the rest of the the nation? I don't know. Would God have still dealt with him so severely if Achan had come up to Joshua the night before and said, hey man, I'm the one that did it and I want to make it right? What would God have done? I, I don't know. Maybe God still wanted to make a statement. I I really don't know. But whatever the process, whatever his reason, the process did its thing and God judged the nation and judged this man and his family severely because not one shred of evidence that he ever existed was left behind. Now when you think about applying this, let's think of it this way. God always forgives our sins when we confess our sins. As his church, as believers, the Bible tells us you come before the Lord as a believer and you confess your sins to God and God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Now, this question then has to be asked. If I continually confess my sins to God and I'm continually committing the same sinful actions and I have formed over a period of years a habit, At what point does God step in to judge the habit and to make changes? Because if I, as a Christian, keep confessing and God keeps forgiving, then what and when does anything ever change? And so here's my point, and I want you to think about this, that God will not persistently tolerate sin. That like any good parent, There comes a point in time where God intervenes to correct this, to stop it. Now, there's still a lot of questions left with that. I understand that. But how else is God going to correct behavior in our lives, which is His goal, because the Bible says He is conforming us to His image, if God doesn't step in and discipline us when we don't take care of it ourselves? If you as a parent have a child who comes up continuously saying, Yeah, Mama, I bit the neighbor kid, and I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And then the next day, I bit the neighbor kid again, but I'm really sorry, and I won't do it again. And we keep doing that. At some point, Mama says, Hey, you may be sorry, but you're getting your tail beat anyway. You know? Because this has to end. And for your own good, parents do that their children. And for your own good, God does too. And I really believe that there are some times in our lives where God needs to discipline us, needs to chasten us in order to stop the behavior. Now, I don't know what that looks like because this is the big debate with with us. Will, will people come into my office, you know, God, God's Chastening me, God's disciplining me because this terrible thing happened. I don't know that. I really don't. And you know what? You you may or may not know it either. I, I don't know. I tend to think that if God's going to discipline me, then somehow God's going to make apparent to me the reason for it. Otherwise, this doesn't really do its job. But God does at times step in, because God will not persistently, over periods of time, keep tolerating over and over the same sin. And let me say this, I believe this is different from forgiveness. You know, I can forgive my child, because I love them, and I'm committed to them, and our relationship will never change. But because I love them, I may spank them. Because I love them, I may may put them on restriction. Because I want the behavior to stop. God saw in the nation of Israel at this early stage in their their life here a behavior that had to be nipped in the bud. No more of this. As we go into this relationship and move ahead, you have got to obey me. And he made that point very clear. And I can't help but think that there are times in our lives when God does the same thing. And I think when he does that, God reveals it to us and he reveals what's really in our hearts. And I think, this is my opinion, that then is when real repentance takes place because we are broken by that time. Three lessons, hard lessons that we had to learn. Your sin always affects other people. Your pride is your greatest Weakness, your greatest pitfall, the thing you've got to guard against more than any other thing, is your pride. And thirdly, that God will not persistently tolerate sin. Those are the lessons. Tonight, when you go into your groups, I want you to be honest. Okay, I want you to talk in your groups about times in your life where you felt like God was disciplining you. How did you know that? What did it look like? You know, I'm not. I'm not asking for confessions here. I'm just saying. Look back at your life and talk about this. Talk about some of your greatest weaknesses. Do you see pride in your life? Where do you see it? What's it look like? What are you going to do about it? How can the church help you? Have there been times in your life where your sins have affected other people or vice versa? Let's talk about it. I think you're going to find that we're all in this together. And we all struggle. We really do. We we struggle. But we have to, like the Bible says, be there for each other. If you're here this morning and you don't know what it means to be a Christian, you don't know what it means to have eternal life, let me read you this one last verse, and we're going to wrap it up. It's in John 6, verse 47, and here's what it says. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. It just doesn't get any plainer than that, any more simple than that, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you understand that he died on the cross, and you believe and trust in him that God says you have right now eternal life. It's the most important thing you'll ever hear, the most important thing you'll ever do, is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning you've never understood that, I would love to sit down with you and talk to you about that, to show you in Scripture what the Bible says. So there's a yellow card in the seat back in front of you. If you would like to talk with me about anything, fill it out, dropping it in the offering plate when it comes by, okay? Our heavenly Father, as we bow before you this morning, Lord, we are humbled because we see aching in us a lot of times. We see pride in us. We see sinful things that we think and convince ourselves that it's nobody else's business. It's no big deal, and Lord, it is. And I pray for each one of us that we would really be pricked in our hearts, and that we would take, uh, we would consider this seriously as you consider it. And that, Father, we could make changes in our lives. Lord, help us to put others first and put you first. That, Father, we would not be prideful people. And that we would not be flippant about things in our lives that need to change. And that, Father, we could understand and see other people's lives that we've affected. And may we make the changes that are necessary. Father, we love you and we serve you with all of our hearts. Help us, Father, to be clean inside and out. In Jesus' name, amen.